welcome to Real Life with Pamela Lau. You guys, I am so excited for you to hear our podcast today with Pastor Dominic Dunn from West Side of Jesus Church. He has just written a book called When Faith Fails. And in the book and in our podcast, Pastor Dunn talks about when he experienced a failure in faith. And now he has a faith that he ha- didn't have before. And I think every one of us almost can relate to times like that. And it's an encouragement to hear um, this conversation because it, we talk about how doubt is not the end. And how many of you out there today, you know, need to be able to discern between doubt and unbelief. So um, thanks for being here today. I trust and pray that you get to hear some kind of encouragement in your faith journey today. Here we go. All right. Welcome back to Real Life with Pamela Lau. We are so excited to have our special guest today who happens to be a local pastor here in the Portland area. And he is the senior pastor of West Side of Jesus Church. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And so, Dom, will you introduce yourself? Tell us how you say your full name because sure. I, send, I send to say both of your yeah. names at the same time. And if you could just tell us a little bit about um, how you got to where you are today as the senior pastor, that'd be super helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay, my name's Dominic Doan, and uh, we've been living in the Portland area for about five years. Uh, prior to this, we were in North Carolina for a bit, and uh, Oxford for a couple years, and then I was a pastor in Hawaii for eight years. And uh, yes, yeah, so it's been kind of a long, evolving, evolving journey. I was a missionary for several years in the South Pacific. Okay, when you say we, yeah. who is we? Yeah, well, okay, so the missionary part was just me. I was uh, okay. teaching at a school and then uh, got married uh, in Oregon, and my wife and I then moved to Vienna, and uh, she was a school teacher. I taught English for some companies there in Vienna, and then went from there to Maui, <laughs> went there <laughs> okay. for eight years, and yeah, kind of sure all you over. sure you were working? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so it's been, it's been a good journey, um, and how we ended up here was... Uh, I was at the University of Oxford, and um, I was friends with some pastors in this area, and they extended a job opportunity for me. Uh, so we finished up the program, moved here, and then that job kind of evolved to uh, what I'm doing now. Okay, as, yeah. and what you're doing now, though, is not just pastoring, but you also are an author. Yeah, Can you? Is yeah. this your first book, second yeah, book? Yeah, first book. Okay, can you tell us yeah. the name of it? Sure, it's called When Faith Fails, Finding God in the Shadow of Doubt. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, came out in February and just shares a bit about my story, how I went through a season of deconstruction and reconstruction, and then just unpacking the subject mm-hmm. of doubt. Like I think we, the time is now to start having these conversations. Yes. I think we're actually behind the curve, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> but we need to talk about w- what it looks like to go through seasons of not only deconstruction, a lot of people are talking about deconstruction, but how do we reconstruct from there? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great comment to say about how do we reconstruct from there. But before we do that, can you just give us a little bit of a background of how you actually came to faith in Christ? Oh, so I wasn't born in a Christian home. Okay. I, was, I was born in England. Uh, believe it or not, you'd never guess it based on the accent. And at the age of eight, <laughs> moved to California, Southern California. Mm-hmm. And our family just, they, they were not believers at all. Um, mm-hmm. My dad at that time was an alcoholic and drug user. My parents were separated. He was living in his car in San Diego. And then right at the age of 10, um, my uh, mom became a Christian. She heard the gospel. 
and responded. She took my sister and I to church, and we started hearing the gospel. We became Christians, started praying every night. My mom would actually lead us in prayer for our dad every single night. We'd get on our knees and pray for him. My mom's remarkable, just the way she's forgiven. Um, and sure enough, like months months later, uh, he comes over one night and gives his life to Jesus, Ooh, like wow. sat on the back porch of our house and opened up his heart to the Lord. And my parents, they ripped up the divorce papers, which they had, all they had to do was sign them and they ripped them up and my wow. dad came back. And <laughs> That's amazing. It's a crazy story. And <laughs> I know. A couple of years later, he became a pastor. Um, yeah, so that was like for me to see kind of the dark pit that we were in as a family and just seeing it ripped apart, you know, with alcoholism, drugs, all that. And to see the redemptive power and healing of the gospel was so formative for me. I think it helped help prevent me from wanting to go down that path personally because I saw just how drugs and alcohol wrecked my dad um, mm-hmm. and then seeing what the gospel could do in bringing a family back together. And yet I heard when you gave your talk, uh, yeah. I heard it twice last year, actually. Okay. I heard you say that you did go through a season in your tw- yeah. 20s, yep. 30s. Yep. that's right. Uh, of a season of doubt. So can yes, you just address that for a minute? Totally. Um, yeah, so I think some some people are, are kind of cursed with always wanting to ask why or always <laughs> having doubts and questions about stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm kind of in that camp. Some people I know, it's like they... They don't. It's like they came out of the womb, you know, singing Hillsong and haven't looked <laughs> looked back since. And I, I kind of envy that. I think that's a that's a beautiful thing. But most of us, we we question. And yeah, so growing up, uh, even once I became a Christian, um, I I did wrestle with with doubts, questions about why certain things were allowed to happen in our story as a family. At the age of eighteen, I um, moved to Mexico and worked for an orphanage there, or volunteered, I should say, for an orphanage for handicapped kids. And these are kids with severe, severe disabilities who have been rejected by the system or abused by parents or family members um, who had just gone through unspeakable things. And that year really broke me at kind of a deeper level of just like grappling with the problem of evil and suffering and seeing the level of suffering. And so that that was like another doubt. The seed of doubt was planted in my heart. Why? Why, God, would you allow this to happen to these these kids, these innocent kids? Then later on, becoming a pastor in Hawaii. Um, ah, man, any pastor can can vouch for this. But as a pastor, you walk with people through their mm. journeys of of doubt and suffering and pain, and those just sl- they slowly start to accumulate. I, I think more pastors struggle with doubt than we. And we oh. dare to admit, you know, because they're I there. I think any of them were thought, they're saw, really do the wrestling, yeah, right? Yeah, yep. They're there by the bedside of, you know, people who are dying of yeah. cancer oh. or, uh, you know, I remember a mom who had been mm-hmm. praying for a child for years and, and she has one, but is born dead. And mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like you're, you're just walking with people through that. And so, again, it was building up. And then you add the other layer of like intellectual doubts and books I'm reading and things I'm grappling with and wrestling through. Um, that was building up too. Long story short, in 2010, moved, moved back to Oxford doing this degree. And the doubts had just kind of accumulated to a point where I wanted to really think it through and ask the question, what do I believe and why? And I really want to go those places that maybe as a pastor, I've been too afraid to ask or, you know, in context, it's hard to like open up and you know, with a congregation, like, I'm really struggling with this, right? Because you're supposed to and have the answers. And is that even appropriate? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So this that was a season for me, and it was so healthy to just be real, authentic, and just say, I 
I have these questions and doubts and I'm going to, I'm going to take a season of my life and really explore it. The program I was in, uh, I chose the first year to look at the arguments of atheistic writers. And, uh, so starting with the old atheist to the new atheist, I'm just like going all through these books, writing papers on the topic and meeting with different atheists, met Richard Dawkins, you know? Um, and I wanted to see, okay, I kind of skipped over the progressive Christian movement, Okay. Um, it, because it just didn't appeal to me. I, I thought, well, if I'm going to go there, I, I think I'd rather just leapfrog that and, and let's see what the atheistic writers mm -hmm. are actually See what the end saying. result is. Yeah, let's just see what the end result is. <laughs> yeah. Where where would that path take me anyway? Right. Yeah. Um, th there was a season, you know, I'm reading like all the, the so-called progressive kind of writers and thinkers and whatever and some interesting things. Um, but I, I leapfrogged that for the most part and just went, okay, w w what do the atheists have to say? Like, mm because there's some strong arguments and I began to hash those out and think them through. And there was a time, and I talk about this in the book in chapter four, um, there was a season, I remember it so clearly, where I really felt like I, I could lose my faith here. Some of the arguments were really, I was struggling with them. And um, so I, I would say that was the point of like deconstruct, deconstruct. And I, I still believed, still believed in God, but I could also see some of the power of the atheistic arguments. You know, Nietzsche has this line where he says, you stare into the abyss yep. and the abyss stares mm -hmm. into you. There, there is yep. that moment of nihilistic angst <laughs> where that, that crushing nothingness of just a, a godless universe. And I began to feel that press on me, but slowly, imperceptibly at first, and my wife was a huge part of this, um, I was able to kind of re build and reconstruct and make make my faith my own um, and coming out of that season I really had a heart and I still do to help share with people who are in that time of deconstruction that your doubt is not how the journey how the story has to end exactly. the doubt can actually be a catalyst to deeper faith and this is another topic we may or may not want to get into, but I, I think the church has done a really bad job when it comes to a, a healthy theology of doubt. And we're setting people up, because we've done such a bad job, we're setting people up to have a shipwrecked faith mm -hmm. when they encounter questions that they don't know how to answer, mm -hmm. rather than seeing the unanswered questions as an opportunity to wrestle with God. Absolutely. Well, this, this really raises a question that we've been exploring, which is what... Do people know about Christianity? What are we assuming that they know? So, because like you're you're getting into these higher level conversations and ideas, and what Pam and I are finding out is that people don't even have the lower level stuff, right. and then they're jumping to like these high level seminary discussions. <laughs> yeah. So, from your perspective as a pastor, what do people these days yeah. like Pam and I? We and you, we we come from a generation that's a little bit different than the generation coming up now. Right. And there were just some assumptions about, yeah. oh yeah, here's what Christianity is. Here's what sin is. You know, it's yeah. kind of like in the air a little bit more. Right. <laughs> what is Christianity for most people today when you're doing your pastoring? Oh, wow, that's a that's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mark Sayers has some really good things to say about that. Okay. In his book, Disappearing Church, Reappear Reappearing Church. Hmm. Um, you're right, the language has changed. Uh, <laughs> and even geographically where we are, so we're in Portland area. Yes. Uh, that, you know, that, that has, uh, that shapes the conversation. I lived for a year in the South. I remember going to 
the gym or grocery stores and I meet perfect strangers and they'd say, where do you go to church? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Coming from England, like, wow, that it was shocking. You know, here, mm -hmm. that's not going to happen. If you dare to ask a question, people will think you're a bigot immediately. <laughs> um, so <laughs> language is changing, I think, mm -hmm. as well uh, in, the, in the life of the church. Sadly, uh, in, in many cases, I want to be careful not to stereotype here, but That's in many right. cases, we've coming out of the church growth seeker sensitive movement, 80s, 90s, whatever, um, and more of an emphasis on felt need type of sermons and less on like what the Bible actually has to say. Mm. I think it's actually raised up a generation of people who don't know what the Bible has to say. Right. And so Christianity for them is just a litany of stereotypical pithy statements, but the depth isn't necessarily mm -hmm. there as much. Um, but there's such a hunger right now that right. people have to know who, who is God. There's also an angst, maybe a discontent with the emerging generation with the church as a structure, because they can mm -hmm. see through a lot of the inauthenticity. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a yearning for something more. There's a yearning for depth. There's a yearning for theology. There's a learning to know who Jesus is. And in fact, I'd even argue even secular culture, mm -hmm. Jesus is still very much mm -hmm. <laughs> something that people want to talk about. Because mm -hmm. they see in this carpenter from Nazareth, truth and beauty and goodness that they don't necessarily see played out in their own life, a story that they want to be a part of. Well, and I so agree with you that there's a need for this depth and a need to talk about it. Mm. So in light of that, how long have you been the pastor now in Portland? Yeah, uh, five years. Five yeah. years. Okay. Mm -hmm. So even in those five years, would you say that you've seen any kind hmm. of shift in patterns or changes? Or would you say, well, no, it's all, it's about the same. People ask the same kinds of questions. They have the same kind of responses. I think there's a shift happening. Can, yeah. you, can you articulate it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the emerging generation is, Gen Z is considered yep. the least Christian generation in our nation's history. Two-thirds of Americans, this is Pew Research, mm -hmm. say that they struggle with doubt on a regular basis. Children who are raised in the church, um, most of which by the time they graduate high school will depart and leave the church for, for a time. Uh, the questions that people are asking is they want to know, is Christianity viable? Is it, does it work? We're feeling the pressures of culture that increasingly, especially in a city like ours, increasingly mm -hmm. labeling, uh, shaming mm -hmm. uh, Christians um, mm -hmm. politically. I think that's a big part of it, too, mm. where uh, people now associate, think of the term evangelical as part of uh, a certain yes, political movement or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so pe people are ashamed. And there's a lot of people who are ashamed to speak up about their faith or afraid to speak up about their faith or don't know how. And so I am seeing shifts there. I'm also seeing great reason to be hopeful because okay. for us at our church, our church is really young. Like the majority of the church how, how is... How old is the church? Uh, 15 years old. Oh, yeah. And wow. it's primarily millennials and Gen Z. Okay. Um, except for our eight o'clock service, <laughs> <laughs> I love our eight. It's a great, it's a great crew. But yeah, is that, it, the, is that the service I should go to? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the over, the over yes. forty. Do you have an organ at that service? <laughs> I know we don't actually. Oh, it's a, they they bring their earplugs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there, you know, there is reason to be hopeful as okay. well. I I think we there's some foundational work we have to do in helping prepare the emerging generation to know how to respond to some of the questions that culture is asking. Okay, what is that foundational work? Um, well, well, I mean, uh, speaking just from kind of where my headspace has been over the last few years, I think 
constructing a theology of doubt before they begin to encounter those doubts. So can I stop you for just a second? Yes. I, I can't get my mind off of back to your story when you were in England. Mm. And when you said, you know, I went ahead and took the lid off. Yeah. And I looked into that abyss. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's pretty brave, right? Yeah. I mean, some of us would be afraid that we might lose something. Right. So when you were there in that place, would you say that you experienced at all what we would call the term spiritual warfare? Or would you say yeah. this was just a self-induced sort of, I need to find this out? Oh, man. Well, I, I think so much of life is spiritual at a certain level, right? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I do believe that there was a spiritual component. I mean, when you're looking at a worldview such as atheism and nihilism, it's, it's, it's dark. If you actually follow out the implications mm -hmm. of it, not all of the new atheists have done a good job in being honest mm -hmm. about the implications of their atheism. Okay, what do you mean by that? And by that, I mean they are reconstructing it into a version of humanism, which is essentially repackaged Christianity, taking mm -hmm. Christian values and and exhuming God from the process. So one one author who's interesting that speaks on this, um, kind of a modern day Nietzsche in many ways, uh, John Gray. He lives in England, I think in London, and he wrote a book called Straw Dogs, and he takes athe new atheism to task um, by basically saying they're not going far enough. They have their atheistic worldviews, but they're not following it out to their, their logical end. They're saying they want purpose and meaning and value and justice, mm -hmm. but their worldview doesn't really honestly give them that. John Gray is an atheist. So he's writing this from an atheistic perspective, saying to the Dawkins or, you know, or Sam Harris or whatever, uh, at that time, Christopher Hitchens of the world. Okay, you're making this argument, but you need to take it a step further because you're saying we can still have purpose. You're, you're still saying that there's such a thing as justice. And John Gray is saying, no, from where I see it, again, this is very Nietzsche, mm -hmm. from where I see it, there isn't justice. That's just a term we've invented. There isn't true purpose. Mm. Um, and we need to own up to that. Um, so that, to me, that's an interesting way of looking at it because he's an atheist critiquing atheism. Atheists, he recently right. wrote a book called Seven Types of Atheism, which is interesting as well. But could it be that the, the enemy is mm -hmm. bringing this kind of deceptive thinking mm -hmm. um, slowly yeah. and seeping into... Yeah. That's why I wondered if yeah. that moment for you... Yeah. Okay. Somehow. So it wasn't like I was seeing, you know, demons or no, sacrificing no, not cats. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but 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 you're right. It it was a dark it was a dark difficult time. I I think you know when it comes to a theology of doubt, discerning doubt from unbelief is important. Um, many Christians think that doubt is the same as unbelief, uh, whereas if you look in the New Testament, they're two different words to different contexts unbelief is a resolution resolving to not believe think mark 5 jesus left the yes. village because of their unbelief, unbelief. or think uh -huh. like richard dawkins who i sat in one of his classes in oxford and he actually told us someone asked him this question is there anything that would change your mind he said there's literally nothing that would change my mind so he's like made up his mind okay. he said even if god wrote his name yahweh in the sky he said I, he I just doesn't believe yeah which is fascinating as a he scientist chooses. because yeah. as a scientist you should have beliefs that are falsifiable right mm -hmm. this is part of the scientific hypothesis and process, but he's like, nope, there's, there's nothing that would change my mind. That I would label as unbelief, right? Okay. So it's not just atheism, it's like an anti-theism, right? Doubt, on the other hand, is saying, I've got questions, I'm unsure, and I want to find the truth. This is why Jude 22 says, be merciful to yes. those who doubt. Yes. So where the, the 
you know, the spiritual warfare fits into all of this. I think we're constantly in the midst of some kind of battle. But to the doubter, to the one who has questions, the one who is uncertain, I think the enemy wants to capitalize on those doubts to lead towards unbelief. But I would also okay. argue that the Spirit can capitalize on those doubts to push us into a deeper version of Which faith. is what happened to you. Yes. So um, for yes. me, like there was this turning moment where God allowed those doubts to bring me to a place, I think, of, of faith that I hadn't had before. It was, a, it was like good. a minimum, you know, First Peter That's talks good. about the refining right. fire. It was that kind of experience for me. Um, you know, when you reconstruct... Uh, Sometimes it's like a full-blown, you're taking the house and ripping it apart and building a new one. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's a rearranging of the furniture. Mm -hmm. And mine was kind of a combination of, of both. Uh, but the outworking of that, yeah, I would just say to anyone who's struggling, anyone who's doubting, lean in. Like, this is your moment. This is your time to wrestle with God. Don't think that because you're having these questions, you need to throw it all out. I'm throwing the baby out in the bathwater. I think that's excellent. And what I would tell you is my, what I think the... what. The younger generation I hear saying is, "Well, who's who am I going to lean into? Mm -hmm. Who's going to who's going to help me answer those questions?" Yeah. And that's and I know Rob's yeah. book, he's got something. So, so I really appreciate it. Um, everything that you're saying, um, especially this sort of um, acknowledgement that the default position or in response to Christianity is a negative one. Mm -hmm for this generation, whereas for us growing up, you were seen as religious, but you were seen as, well, this is a good person, but you know, religion's not for me or whatever. But now the default position is you're a bad person if you're a yes. Christian. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that creates that doubt sort of immediately. Am I on the wrong side? Yeah, yeah. what happened? Yeah, right. well, as so as the church has retreated and withdrawn and culture is kind of taking some of those spaces, we now, we've lost kind of some of our moral authority mm -hmm. to speak into yes. things. And there's been a fascinating shift that has happened too, mm -hmm. where the nons, the religious nons, mm -hmm. are now using moral language, yeah. like saying, yeah. okay, this yeah. is right. That my view on sexuality or my view on some political topic or whatever, this is morally right. Mm -hmm. And that's put Christians in a very interesting space because now they're being told, actually, you're you're morally wrong, mm -hmm. and because you don't accept the, exactly. So mm -hmm. thus, there's a degree of shaming that's mm -hmm. happening. We live in a, a culture of shaming. Mm -hmm. Oh, mean, for sure. You know, so at, check it, check mm -hmm. out Twitter. So, right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So related to this is this idea that we're kind of seeing how the church isn't anticipating these things happening. Mm -hmm. So the church is kind of like taken by surprise because it's not organize itself in such yeah. a way to anticipate that doubt is going to happen yeah. with your young people. Yeah. Or that, like Pam said, who's coming alongside? The church didn't anticipate this problem, so mm -hmm. nobody's coming alongside. We just had um, a, a young uh, a millennial who was on this weekend. He's going into the dental field. Um, but he's like, where are the Christians in my church who, or the Christians who are in this transition mm -hmm going into dental school, looking for all this stuff, where are they? They don't come around me, right? Hmm. And and it kind of dawned on me, 
well, the church didn't anticipate a situation like this. Hmm. So yeah. can you speak on this idea? Because it seems like hmm. what you're sort of suggesting is that um, the church didn't plan on their young people experiencing death. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's just a sad testimony, I think, to, to much of the American church, where we've been very much obsessed with buildings and structures and numbers mm. and just the organizational business part of it and you know, pithy series or secret, being secret sensitive that ah, underneath all that, people start to see through the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they, they're screaming out for authenticity. They're screaming out for truth. Culture is leading us in a certain direction and the church isn't doing the best job in equipping people for that. One, one possible solution is a greater relationship between the academy and the church. Oh, so I think I think of like you know George Fox, for example, mm-hmm. um, or you know Wycliffe Hall, University of Oxford, uh, Notre Dame, you know, with mm-hmm. with uh, Alvin Plantinga. There, there are some brilliant institutions and brilliant minds, brilliant thinkers, mm-hmm. and yet much of the church hasn't been exposed to the depth, the historical depth and richness of that's of right. some of these views and perspectives and theology yeah, that's, that's and really philosophy. Yeah. You know what I mean? I so mean, it's you're, like you're, we're, we're in two different spheres. Yeah, you're hitting my limbic response. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. okay, so I have this uh, idea of, you know, universities are the cathedrals of the culture. Um, so the university comes out of the that. cathedral, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. professor means professor of faith in a particular discipline. Yeah. But universities are just as much in crisis right now yeah. as maybe even more so mm-hmm. than church. Yeah. And what it is producing yeah. <laughs> is highly questionable. Yes, yes. So it's this in, really... In some cases, Yeah, sure. there's yeah. a really interesting challenge here. But I, I so how do you imagine mm-hmm. something like this happening as yeah. a pastor of a church? Yeah, um, well, so I'm here every Monday. A big part of the reasoning there is just... Personally, I want to be more engaged in the life of the mind with these, mm-hmm. with the emerging generation okay. here, involved in some of the conversations. And then also, it's cross pollinating, right? So, some of the brilliant minds and thinkers that are part of this university, it, bringing them back Into to Westside. Like, yeah. here's a guy who's a Bonhoeffer scholar. You guys heard of Bonhoeffer? This guy was amazing. <laughs> right, right. And he's going to give us this lecture on it. Stuff like that can be, this is very nuts and bolts, like right. very practical. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the point behind that is, is to move away from a structure where churches, you just show up for yes. 45 minutes or an hour or something on a Sunday, you hear this little sermonette for Christianettes, but it's not really <laughs> answering the questions. It's not engaging mm-hmm. with the difficult things. Mm-hmm. And that's, let's rewrite that script. Yes, you know, let's remember our history. Yeah, let's remember our history. I, mean, that's I think exactly if we want to go forward, in some ways yes. we have to go backwards and go deeper, go mm. deeper into our faith. Not withdraw from culture, right. not withdraw from the questions. But And you said that earlier, engage. by the way. You yeah. said, I see the church withdrawing from culture. Mm-hmm. So solve that for us in five minutes. No, I'm like, but part of the academy, but how, but okay, is that culture? I mean, how do you get a church back into culture? We have to begin to engage with some of the questions that they're asking. So if we want to get like really nuts and bolts, um, you know, a couple of years ago at our church, we did a series called Questions. And uh, typically we're going through books of the Bible, but I just felt like, hey, we, there's questions being asked that we need to engage mm-hmm. with. So we would take a week and just begin to grapple with some of these difficult mm-hmm. cultural issues, mm-hmm. a topic per week. 
And then following up with that, we would have like a Tuesday night Q&A time and uh, bring in a, you know, a professor or a thinker mm -hmm. or whatever who can lecture on that topic and then open it up for Q&A. I found that that was like, for our church, it was really helpful. Did you have a good response? Very, wow. very good response. So I think that's mm. a very practical way that churches can mm. begin to engage with some of these questions. They have to be honest. That's, re that's so. really interesting um, because you're engaging the mind. Yeah. And, which is not something most people associate with church. Yeah, sadly. Yeah, because <laughs> they think, oh, well, it's oh. like the church is for spiritual matters and spiritual yeah. stuff, and then the mind that's handled by other people. Right. That's We have to rewrite that script mm. because nothing's more robust and beautiful and intellectually profound than, than our faith. So, so what's super interesting to me, uh, you know, it's funny to be in your late 40s and kind of experience the evangelical boom and bust. Yeah. And you know, that run up to evangelicalism kind of becoming the thing that everybody was talking about. If you think about like Bush to election, you know, it was the evangelicals, right? <laughs> right. All of a sudden this sub, this yeah. market got developed, yeah. evangelicals. And I think of but I think of people like Francis Schaeffer, yeah, who was talking about this kind of stuff that we're talking about yeah, in 70s. the seventies. He was so and ahead 80s. of his time, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, and then yeah. you know Mark Knoll, scandal yeah. of the evangelical mind. Yep. You yep. know, it's almost like they got muted, yeah. because we became the culture, yeah, to some degree, yeah, yeah, and it became politicized. Yeah, I think there could be some comparisons mm. with like Constantine. Yeah, right. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, speaking of the politicization of Christianity, I mean, that was a fascinating time where Christians were the outsider, they were mm. the oppressed, they were the minority, they were the persecuted ones, and suddenly they're whining and dining with the emperor. <laughs> and and it actually began to, I, I think, dilute uh, in many ways mm -hmm. the, the Christian message. Going back to, you mentioned you didn't even look into the progressive thinkers. Mm -hmm. I think mm. the progressive the theologians of our day, whether they're bloggers or yeah. uh speakers, whatever, or theology teachers, I think they have quite a platform. Yeah, you're mm. right. And so Absolutely. how do you, how do you see that? Ooh, okay. Now that's, that's, a, that's <laughs> a, from Constantine I, to that, well, Mitchell I don't mean, Held Evans. But I guess what I'm saying is I don't <laughs> yeah. think Christians have been completely, I don't think we're completely out. Yeah. I think there is a sect of Christianity that's right. welcomed. So I guess yeah. I'm, I don't know. Do you, do you know, do you know Elisa Childers? No. Oh, so you should get to know her. She has a great podcast, and she's writing a book on that topic. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, you're right. Christianity has always had an outsider kind of perspective. It was mm -hmm. countercultural mm -hmm. in, in, in the early church. And what we're seeing in some, I want to be so careful here because uh, right, I know you, there's you, some you, versions of, of thinkers who are maybe associated with the progressive camp or whatever are, are asking very, very good questions that we need to engage with and grapple with. Mm -hmm. But when, when Christianity just begins to accommodate culture rather than be the outsider prophetic voice, something's wrong. And that could be said for the progressive camp, that could be said for the conservative camp. Mm -hmm. We're all at, at a fault. Yeah, like Jesus is neither, he, he's not in, in the political camps. He came to bring a kingdom that is That's out right. of this world. That's right. And I think if we can recapture a theology of what the kingdom of God is and who Jesus mm -hmm. is, make that our message, 
uh, it's interesting you mentioned Bush. Like even this last week, um, Trump tweeted something as he does, um, on, uh, <laughs> as he and does. he specifically mentioned uh, in light of this whole impeachment thing. He, he said the evangelical Christians are fuming about this. You know what, what's happening, and you can see what he's doing there. He's trying yeah. to say I'm with them, they're with me, right? Um, but I think that even that story is changing. Like I, I see a progressive camp that's growing in influence. I'm seeing uh, evangelical. That term even is now being, people asking, should we use that term? Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people just kind of in between saying, I love Jesus and I don't, I'm not really in these camps. And maybe that's a good thing. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Hmm. I think that's the best thing. If we can keep the kingdom ahead of us, if we can keep Jesus ahead of us, hmm. if we make that our message, that's hmm. what we need to get back to. It's we're simplifying it. I, I so I think that's so good because that's actually what I feel like is having me rise above some of these conversations mm -hmm. is that's what I'm longing for. Yes. But I, I will always as a teacher yeah. want to take people with me. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't just want to go there by myself. Yeah. I want to tell everyone around me. I think that's so beautiful because, you know, one option that has been floated out there mm -hmm. um, is the Benedict option. Have you heard about that? Oh, it's a book that the came guy out. down in Louisiana. Is that where he's from? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting book. But the premise is... He wrote the, the Ruthie Lemons book. Yeah, okay. Yes, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The premise yeah, yeah. is like okay. we, we're kind of replaying what happened with Constantine, the church. Therefore, the only option is for us to re retreat, like withdraw, get to the desert, put up mm -hmm. the walls, re-educate, and then go back. A lot of good stuff in that book. But that is one option. Like, okay, maybe this is a time for us to kind of huddle and rethink everything and <laughs> equip everyone better yes. so that we can be more engaged in the long run. Um, mm. I, I would say that and I would say we can't keep engaging. Like We still need to be out there. We still need to be sharing, talking about Jesus and mm -hmm. keeping those conversations alive. Absolutely. Yeah. Just last week, I'll um, and then before, because we have a few minutes left, but I gave a, another set of students the assignment to speak on why their faith matters. Yeah. And this time I got a lot of pushback. Okay. You know, I had students meet with me in my office and they're like, you know, this is really too private to share. Really? And I said, really? I said, tell me why. Yeah. I said, you're at a Christian university. You know what you took. And it, it was just a couple people who said this, but they said, I just really think that that's only something I want to tell people who really know me. I oh, see. That is so fascinating. There was this research done this last year. You guys probably read this. They, they interviewed American evangelical Christians, and they found that 97% of evangelical Christians believe that sharing their faith is a vital part of their faith. 95% um, would argue knowing Jesus is the best thing that could happen to a person. 73% are saying we've been equipped to know how to share our faith. Now, n none of those stats are super su surprising, but this was the surprising bit. Same body of research, 47% said they don't share their faith because they don't want to offend people. <gasps> oh, mm. So there's this exactly. fascinating paradox where hmm. 97 are saying this is important. 95% mm -hmm. knowing Jesus is the best thing that could ever happen to you, but I'm not going to tell you about him. Right. <laughs> what? I know. Where yeah. is that? And that wasn't, again, that wasn't part of my yeah. growing up. Yeah. And so, but when they did it this last week, they performed. You would not believe the emails I got. Really? Thank you. I was so encouraged to hear what that student said and what this did. Because wow. it, and I watched, 
young people come to life. Yeah. It's like there was a power in speaking out mm. why their faith mattered. That's right. And that's why, so I, I wanted to go back to your point of we need to, how do we train each other to do, where do we even do this at anymore yeah. in our culture? Except hopefully at church. Yes, absolutely. But places like this. Places, yeah. Yeah, good and podcasts like good, yours. <laughs> yeah, bring well, it all on. The, ir- the irony, of course, is that there's never been an easier time in human history to share any message you want. Yes, <laughs> right? that's right. And it was interesting, we, we brought this up on another podcast. We did an interview with a student for a job, actually. Uh, at the university, and he was reflecting on the most meaningful chapels that he had in his four years. He said the most meaningful ones by far were when professors shared their faith with us. How they, how they, their faith journey, right? Yeah. How they became a Christian. And, Mm. but to this, I find what you just said, Pam, really Mm. interesting because where do kids hear Mm. people's personal faith journeys anymore? Yeah. It's like everything's so abstract and it becomes this sort of meta discussion Mm -hmm. and, and stuff, but nobody's saying, let me tell you about my personal faith in Jesus and how, like your Mm. story. Your story mm-hmm. is automatically engaging, mm-hmm. you know, and and it's it goes moves from your head into yeah. your heart the right away. Of this is so funny because yesterday at church I gave a message, and one of my points was share your story because <laughs> okay. we're talking about Good. how to evangelize, okay. right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and we're all missionaries in this culture, and uh, you know, many people grew up in a church context where they were told, okay, evangelism is memorize these twelve points. Mm. These are the questions you ask, mm-hmm. and if they respond this way, here are your three options, right? And it's like this wrote script you think of that question where would you go if you died today <laughs> yes which is the right. worst opener know, ever really right <laughs> and and so no wonder people shy away from event evangelizing because they're like i don't want to do that plus culture is like pressuring me right now and i feel ashamed and marginalized i get all that but i i what, what's that quote um Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where, where, to, where, buy bread. where to buy bread. And that's mm. sharing our story. Mm. We can all do that. But we, we are, here is the irony of what you just said, is that we long for this authenticity, yeah. but no one really wants to talk about their their need, their uh-huh. absolute total dependence on the living God. Yes. Oh, that's such a good point. So what mm. we're talking about is we do talk about our brokenness. Yeah. We talk about the family that fell apart. We talk about our husband that had an affair. I'm just saying the things mm-hmm. we talk about. Mm-hmm. But do we really talk about what you just said, what we're begging for? Yes. Is to be rescued yes. from the living God. That to me is the gospel. Amen. That yep. is salvation. My The people who are surrounding me, my young people, they can't articulate that unless I, unless yeah. we talk about it. And that's really what Rob and I are finding as we keep these conversations going is what are you saying Christianity is? That's really that just being a good person. No, 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 no. That's not Christianity. That's right. So I think that's an excellent point there. And we need encouragement, right? The Mm. church. Yeah. Okay. We talk a lot about the body. Yeah. That it's organic, (laughs) that it's alive, that Jesus is the head of this body. Yeah. So for my listeners who aren't going to church because they don't think they need it. What would you say to them? Maybe something that they hadn't heard before about why they need to be part of. Well, first of all, Jesus himself (laughs) established the church. So I think that's kind of important. And the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Like this is, this is a vital part of spiritual growth. And a big part of it is we get to journey with one another in growing closer to Jesus. You know, Mm -hmm. we're living stones and sure, we're going to rub each other the wrong way sometimes. And it's going to be awkward and messy. 
but that's how we grow. That's how we grow. And Lamott, mm-hmm. she talks about this in one of her books. Um, and she talks about how the ancient Chinese, when they had these, these vessels, if a vessel broke on the ground or say it got a crack in it, rather than throwing that vessel away, they would take a gold leaf and they would cover the crack with the gold leaf and set it back on the shelf. Mm. And it wasn't there to hide the crack, but rather draw attention to it. It was, mm. it was their way of saying, hey, we kind of own the brokenness mm. <laughs> um, and, and we've, kind of, we've redeemed this story rather than what mm. we do, just kind of toss it. Right. And, and I think there's beauty in that because I think church at its best is when we mm. come and we're honest, we share our story. Here my, here's how this vessel's broken. This is mm-hmm. what I've gone through. And then we adorn one another with grace and we eat and drink together at the Lord's table. We break mm-hmm. bread, we drink the cup, we worship together, we pray mm-hmm. for one another, we're encouraged in scripture together, we're equipped to go back out. I think if ever there's a time where we need the church to be a healthy version of itself mm-hmm. and we need one another, mm-hmm. it's now because it is getting more and more challenging to follow Jesus in this polarized and very secular post-Christian age, and it's only gonna get more difficult. And that's why we need one another. And even if you know someone listening, you're like, well, I don't really like church. A church is full mm-hmm. of hypocrites, whatever. There's always room for one more, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. we, we, no church is perfect. And even if you don't feel you need it, people need you. And I love that, that's and, right. And going to church instead of what, how can they serve me? How, how, mm-hmm. how, what can I get out of it? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you're in a place where you're spiritually mature and you think I'm moving on from the church because it doesn't give me anything. Well, I guarantee there are people in that room that need you. They mm-hmm. need your presence. They need your love. They need your prayers. They need your support. And you can go and just be a missionary in your local church. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a church the size of your church has smaller groups yep, and absolutely. home groups or yeah. something that they can be a yeah, part of. I think of that's for sure. vital to the life of the church yeah. is the smaller groups. That's how you get to know each other. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, so yeah. fun. We thank you. are so thankful that we had this little pocket of time with you. So Well, thank you. We'll hope to see you again on campus. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thank you.